Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 106 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the Snow Devil Gottlieb. Uh, did you did you know that it's going to be snowing in Roanoke this weekend? Is that why? Or you've just been snowboarding? No, no, that's that's part of the reference. But also, it's about to start snowing out in the mountains around Seattle, it looks like. The ski resort that I intend to make my home base this winter season, uh, it's not the closest one, but it's one of the closer ones. It's supposed to get like two feet of snow over the next six or seven days. So I'm excited. I will be a snow devil and uh, snowboarding away come next week, hopefully. I haven't been out yet, but I'm excited to to get it popping. I had to actually look this up because I didn't believe that this was really a magic card. Yeah, I, I kind of was hoping you didn't look it up because I wanted to quiz you about its power and toughness. What do you think the power and toughness is of a snow devil? Of course... It's an aura. It's an enchant creature from Ice Age, and it's like enchanted creature gets flying, and if you have a snow-covered land, it also gets first strike. Some of these old cards are just a trip. First strike, as long as it's blocking and you control a snow land. Right, right. It's so ridiculous. It's so like quaint to look back at old cards, and I kind of wish I had the experience of someone who's just coming to the game now and gets to go through the back catalog of all these cards they had never seen before because I don't know that I had perfect recollection of Snow Devil, but I've seen this card a million times sorting through you know my boxes and just having opened it in Ice Age packs forever ago. But they're so, so funny. It's like, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't want to trash them because obviously you're talking about a completely different era, but there's like no conscious effort of game design whatsoever. It's just like, here's some stats on this thing, which should probably be a creature, but now it's an enchantment instead. Well, I'm I'm glad that not only did I rec- not recognize that that was a magic card, but that after looking it up, I'm fairly certain that I've just never seen it before. So you were post Ice Age before you, when you started playing oh, in like yeah. 2000, right? So I have somewhat of a blind spot for the sets that are pretty bad. Uh-huh. You know, like the the post beta randomness but yeah I, I started in invasion i think my knowledge of mirage and up is pretty good but yeah just the the old random nonsense like turbo nonsense cards i could not tell you what they do you owe it to yourself to take a, a trawl through like the dark and ice age and just see some of the the pure joy that's present on those cards they're really amazing i really don't man my <laughs> my former roommate kyle montgomery uh has been streaming himself opening like beta and alpha starters recently. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just going through and seeing some of those cards, you get like kind of the snow devil feel. But like, since it's beta, I just like knew all of those cards already. Snow devil is completely new to me. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I think they got even sillier after beta because there still was like some foundation and like ground that they were mining at that point. Whereas things just went completely bonkers in Legends, Dark, Ice Age, Homelands. Uh, all those sets are, are so funny. And, and they're like, I, I find them super charming. I really do. Like, I love looking through those cards. 
I don't know, man. If you needed to explore snow design space, I don't like. I don't think you could pay anyone to come up with Snow Devil now. Oh no, definitely not. That is not what snow would be used for. Um, and there is probably like way cooler cold snap cards I could have picked. But like I said, there's some kind of charm in these goofy cards, so that's what I went with. I went with the Snow Devil. Hey, more power to you, man. So we have hella modern tournaments this weekend. You're going to be at GP Portland. I'm going to be at SCG Con with playing in the SCG Envy, maybe. Uh, and there are a couple of RPTQs coming up that are both modern. So it is modern time. Uh, I, I do want to mention that I may end up doing commentary this weekend, assuming Todd Anderson does not get better. He is currently sick and it is questionable whether or not he'll actually be able to do commentary so we'll see i'm the person on deck but if todd gets better and you know i kind of hope he does but you know i also wouldn't mind doing commentary but i don't want him to be bedridden or anything so uh it would would be cool to see you get to have the chance to cover the invitational i guess i I won't get to see it either way i'll be playing in gp portland but I would still, you know, support you getting that chance. I would be sad that you weren't playing the Invitational because I have a feeling you have you have your finger on the pulse of both these formats, I think. And, you know, you're kind of due for, for a win. It feels like it's been a while since you've been up in a top eight. For you, anyway. I mean, for, for normal people, this is a completely reasonable drought. But uh, I expect to see you in a top eight like every couple months or so. And it's, it's been a little bit, little bit longer than that right now. I don't know. I dropped from SCG Baltimore at six and two. <laughs> that's not a top eight though i'm talking no, i want a marquee like, finish from you no you're talking about a drought or whatever and it's like i i think i'm performing like all right i'm not like winning tournaments or whatever but i still think i'm doing okay i hold you to a much higher standard like i said this is this is a jerry t drought not a normal drought you're still doing perfectly fine i demand top eights though on a regular basis and i was i already penciled you in for this one so well yeah, I guess I guess we just have a, a different outlook, whereas you want the results and I look at it like I played a pretty good deck and I lost to two decks that were sort of doing bigger and better things than me and maybe there's some ways to fix it and overall I think I played okay, so you know, I, I, I count that as a win for me. And I think you should and as a player I would do the same thing, but as a Jerry Thompson fan, my expectations are completely unreasonable and aren't rooted in reality whatsoever. So I, I get to demand whatever I want when I'm just supporting you as a fan. Uh, you do, but you're just going to be disappointed, man. I, I'm used to it. That's okay. My life is filled with disappointments. Oh, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to add to that. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Baltimore was fun. The winner's metagame for that tournament is kind of wild where... I don't know if this is like an SCG tour thing, which it it doesn't seem like it should be considering that that was basically the first place where uh, Dredge popped back up, but it just seemed like it was a fair deck bonanza. Yeah, I kind of have a theory about that. It might be a bad theory, but I thought about it and I, I watched a bunch of the tournament and especially in the early rounds. So you're talking like rounds three, rounds four, and SCG tour regulars are appearing and playing against each other. And it's just fair mirror. It, it's John versus Jeskai. And then here's humans. And, and nobody in the kind of SCG leaderboard space is really doing the linear things that I think of when I think of modern. I, I mean, there's some in fact I saw, but for the most part, you're not seeing things like a lot of KCI or. Well, Austin Collins is is second place on the leaderboard and he got eighth with Ironworks. So he's okay. he's your boy. Okay, so so there are exceptions to that rule for sure. 
and Arclight Phoenix got first and second. So there is that. Yeah, I'm I'm not putting that in that category of decks. And you, it, maybe that's something I need to address. Maybe you can tell me I'm wrong by not placing that in the same, like, here's this linear deck. I am looking at something like Ross's deck as kind of the new Delver of the format. Like, very quick clock with a tiny, tiny bit of disruption and a ton of cantrips. So it does the same thing in every single game, does just enough to keep you from winning the game, and ends the game on turn four, turn five, very reliably. Yeah. Ross's deck is obviously very, very fair. Mm-hmm. Any deck with uh, a bunch of standard staple crackling drakes is not going to be categorized as a like linear busted deck, you know? I think uh, Jeffrey Carr's second place version is more along those lines where it's it's basically a burn deck. And he he played, I think, the exact 75 that I posted about a couple weeks ago in one of my articles. And we sat next to each other one of the rounds. And he was saying that he used to play Ironworks, I think, and that his friend told him that he should switch to this deck. And this is like when we both wanted to go to six and one. And he was saying mm-hmm. that he was very happy with the deck and then ended up finishing second. So I think you know, that version is pretty good. I don't know if it's better than hollow one or whatever, but I would, I would put those in the camp of linear kind of unfair decks. Okay. Yeah. I, I think there probably is a, a split there between, you know, is it style arc light decks and the mono red arc light decks. One is certainly flush with a little bit more interaction, especially in post board games where they get access to kind of some counter magic and, you know, very minimal disruption like Alpine Moon, Ceremonious Rejection, Spell Pierce, stuff like that comes in out of the the blue versions of Arc Light, while as the red decks are just beating you to death very quickly. Yep, I agree with that take. So why you think these fair decks did well because the people who play the SCG tour specifically like those on the leaderboard and people like Brad, Seth, whatever, like are all just predisposed to playing fair decks and that's kind of why this happened or what? Yeah, I I think the best players are showing up for the most part, uh, you know, certainly exceptions. The best players are showing up with decks that they believe, and correctly so, that they believe allow them to leverage their play skill. If you think back to when we had Kevin Jones on our cast a few months ago, uh, he basically said something to that effect. Like he's playing these Jeskai decks because he thinks they give him room to outplay his opponents. And it's hard to argue with that theory. And there is a difference between... You know, someone like Matt Nass playing Ironworks and me showing up to an open and playing Ironworks. There's going to be a level of proficiency there that isn't quite the same, uh, a level of experience, differential. And I think that playing something like Jeskai, as Brad and Seth did and ultimately made the top eight with, is giving them room to leverage those kind of things. And, And also just let's not underestimate the value of very solid sideboard plans, which I think elite players are very, very adept at putting together and acting on. And Jeskai gives you a lot of room to sideboard efficiently as well. So I I think all of those things are very important. Yeah, the question is whether or not that actually translates into equity, right? Because yes, you might be able to trick one of your opponents, but at the end of the day, is that actually going to win you a game? Because you're still playing Jeskai, you know, you still have really difficult time closing. You have a bunch of cards that don't necessarily line up well. And one of the things that I mentioned uh, on coverage in Baltimore, I think I sat down with Cedric in the booth for like five minutes, was talking to Jonathan Rossum, who played Jess Guy, and the day before the tournament was playing leagues, and he kept citing out his Cryptic Commands. And he was just like, man, Cryptic Command is just really bad in this format. You know, I'm not playing against like any matchups where Cryptic is good. I guess I just side him out all the time. And it's like, well, 
you probably just change your deck at that point, right? Yeah, it's, it's the best card in Jeskai, right? Like, what, what are you here for? What are you doing? And my theory of the format, basically, like, it has to come up with some excuse to to make a home for these decks and to explain their success. Otherwise, my, form, my theory is kind of out the window. And this is the one I've come up with. I, I don't think I'm just doing lip service and kind of creating something to you know, get to the conclusion I want to get to because data we've seen supports my interpretation of the format, that it doesn't make sense to play these fairer decks. But here's this top eight loaded with fairer decks. So that there has to be an explanation for it. And that's the one I've come up with. I mean, does that check out to you? Can you think of another explanation why these are able to rise to the top? You can also make the argument too that these decks are supposed to be beating up on the creature decks, right? So things like Banned Spirits, which is certainly gaining lots and lots of momentum and was the most played deck, and Humans, which is still getting some good representation as well. Yeah, so Banned Spirits was the biggest deck in Day 2 at 14 copies, Mono Green Tron at 13, Ironworks at 11, Humans at 9, which sort of goes into the Banned Spirits camp, where Mm -hmm. a lot of the same stuff is good against both decks, although... I would note that Banned Spirits is kind of like the the combo hate deck of the format. So obviously Banned Spirits is not going to succeed when the top eight contains a bunch of Jeskai and uh, maybe even the Arclight Phoenix decks, right? Where it's like you just have a ton of lightning bolts flying around. And I don't think that that is particularly good for the deck. Like the deck needs its spell quellers to live. Whereas Humans is just kind of like a, a solid fair deck with minimal disruption. So for Bant Spirits to be the biggest deck, it could be that Bant kind of beat up on some of those decks in day one and made Mm -hmm. it so that they didn't make it to day two. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, yeah, you could say that people like Brad and Seth uh, as two of the five Jeskai pilots in day two potentially just picked off on all of these spirit decks and whatnot to make the top eight. So maybe Spirits cleared the way of the combo decks for Jeskai to do well. Who really knows? It's hard to say. And I would love to have some harder data. I feel like I'm becoming addicted to data with these modern tournaments. I, I really just want to know like matchup percentages and exactly what the narrative of this tournament was. I think we'll have that again at Portland. I know there's a data collection effort that's going to be undertaken by the same folks who analyze GP Atlanta. And I'm excited to see what data comes out of that. But unfortunately, we kind of have to do our best to put together the story of this tournament. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm I'm pretty excited to see what happens because it will also be like we'll have more data for whether or not the SCG crowd continues to play these fair decks. And if that's the case, I mean, a lot of people are talking about playing banned spirits in the Invitational and that might just be a poor choice. Could be. It could. It's so hard to say. I mean, how adaptable is the modern crowd that's going to be playing in the Invitational? Because if they're adaptable and can change their deck at a whim, certainly some attention has to be paid to these Phoenix decks at this point. Uh, But I also think you have to acknowledge the very real possibility that they don't have the same deck flexibility as some other people. And a lot of people are very static with their modern deck choices. Not everyone has four of every card in modern to just bounce around from archetype to archetype or the interest in spending, you know, six or $700 on a new modern deck just for this one tournament. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think that people are capable of changing decks, especially the SCG crowd where a bunch of people know each other and you are, fairly well networked to the point where you can probably find a copy of whatever deck you want. Like the people are still kind of uh, set in their ways where it's like, yeah, Rossum 
has the talent to play whatever deck he wants and likely succeed. And he has the network to potentially acquire cards for those decks. Now, is he going to actually play something other than Jeskai? I doubt it, you know, but the possibility for him to actually switch does exist. Yeah, I think at the the top of the field, certainly, you know, people who are on the SCG leaderboard and, you know, very prominent figures in the community are going to have the ability to either get decks lent to them or whatever it takes, they will find a way to get the cards that they want. But I would assume this invitational field is going to be fairly large. I don't remember what the last invitational clocked in at, but I think they tend to be around three or 400 players. They're, they're not super small fields like they used to be a long time ago. The last one was was pretty big. I think it was something like 550. Okay. But I think that that number should be going down. Okay. Is is the qualification process more difficult at this stage? Or I, I'm honestly not super sure where that's going to change. I think it was something to do with uh, the amount of invitationals decreasing, which meant that people had more invites to this one because it otherwise would have been spread out over the last two. Gotcha. Gotcha. And now things are going to be like evening out a little bit more. And I could be wrong about all of this. You know, maybe the last invitation was 300 or whatever, but I, I am pretty sure it was somewhere in the neighborhood of like 550, maybe even 600 because it, it felt pretty big. And I remember thinking like, you know, this is a large tournament and I don't know. Could be misremembering though. Okay. I mean, I, my estimate would be whatever size of the field is, probably the top 15 to 20% of the field has malleable deck selection. Like they can basically do what you're talking about, network efficiently and acquire what they want. I, I think a lot of the field is way stickier in terms of their deck choice. And there's also just like people love their modern decks. People have a lot of identity tied into their modern decks. And I'm seeing that as I interact with specific communities for specific decks, there's there's so much like pride and I don't know, it's a strange phenomenon in modern where people get so tied to the performance of their deck and they get offended when you suggest their deck isn't good as well. Like That's another thing we've come across repeatedly. Jeskai fans will hate us for doing this episode and being like, Jeskai is still bad despite these facts. They get actually riled up. So it, it's crazy how fervent the supporters of these archetypes are. Well, I get it. I mean, magic is a way to express yourself and your deck choice in many instances says a lot about like you as a person. And there are a lot of different decisions that you made to decide like this is the deck that I'm going to play and specifically like these are the specific card choices that I've made and everything. And I think when someone says like Jeskai sucks or Jun sucks or whatever, you know, people take that personally because it is very much an extension of who they are and like the decisions they made. Right. Where it's like, if someone said like, I think Jeskai is the best choice for this tournament. And we talk about how Jeskai is an awful choice. It means that they did something wrong in their deck selection. Right. I, I don't think that's true because look, if there was an actual answer, then everyone would just get to that point. Like if Jeskai was just the best deck, everyone would be playing it. There has to be a reason to disagree and to feel that way the accuracy of your statement could even differ on a per person basis. It could be, it could be absolutely true that Jonathan Rossum's best choice of winning any tournament is to register Jeskai. I find that very hard to believe, but it could be true just due to his play style, due to his knowledge of the deck. You know, it's really hard to disqualify that possibility. And I think given that you can make statements which are correct on a per person basis. It's it's really hard to take personal offense when someone is expressing, for me, I do not think this is the correct choice. 
I think it's easy for people to take personal offense. I I don't necessarily think that they should have that mindset where it's like, just because you played Jess guy and you want to say, oh, this gives me the best chance of winning. Realistically, I don't think a lot of people believe that to be true. I think it's just like they like Jess guy and they want to keep playing Jess guy and that's completely fine. And I don't fault anyone for doing that, but I do think that people should be a little bit more realistic with how good their deck of choice is. We, we treat every, every deck as like a tool, right? And we can, in theory, play whatever we want. I mean, like we, we both have our, you know, things that we lean toward or whatever. Like you're almost certainly never going to play the best deck just straight up for whatever reason. And I, I think that that is kind of a spew. Yeah, I I think you're mostly right. There are circumstances where I would argue that. But for the most part, my first instinct is to find something other than the best deck. And in a lot of cases, that costs me equity, 100%. Right. So, you know, people, people could say things about that aspect of your deck selection. And good God, have I played some truly heinous decks over the years to the point where Anyone trusting my deck selection should be called into question, probably. <laughs> but you know, it just it is what it is. Like I have I have these things that I lean towards, and like sometimes my goal for various tournaments is to learn things, not necessarily to to try and win. And you know, that's my playtesting or whatever. But right, I, th- I think uh, we've there are we yeah we've we've gone way off base <laughs> for sure. If that's what you were going to say, we've definitely gone far off course. But my final point is that I I think we've made it almost unacceptable to say I am playing this deck because I like it. And maybe that's a bad thing because you do get some equity by enjoying the type of magic you're going to play. I think there's times where you have to put that aside and they're, they're, the choice is so clearly correct in one direction that if you actually care about winning the tournament, you're making a mistake by taking that approach. But there's other times where you know if you're engaged at your highest level, the equity is there to make the decision to play Jeskai as opposed to Ironworks if you're going to put forth that as the best deck. And you're just like, I can't find myself engaged for a full day playing Ironworks. Instead, I'm going to play Jeskai, even if I know matchup percentages are a little bit on the uh, unfavorable side. Maybe that's just correct in some spots. And I think we discount that possibility way too aggressively. Well, I think that we as a podcast talk about equity as winning the tournament and not really con- considering any of those other factors. And we like bring them up and we talk about them and being able to say, I like playing Jess guy, so I'm going to play it. Like, that's cool. I sign off on that 100%, but you need to realize that you're not doing yourself the best service possible as if you're actually trying to win the tournament. And that's it. Right. Be honest about what you're trying to accomplish. So in, in Brad's case, I actually asked him about this at the tournament because he is normally exactly the person who is willing to kill his darlings and play whatever he feels like the best deck is in standard specifically and why he continues to play Jeskai. And he just has this running thing with Ben Nikolic where Ben will give him a list and a sideboarding guide before every tournament and Brad just automatically knows his role and like doesn't have to do all the work of like learning a new modern archetype and figuring out the matchups and all that sort of stuff. So it's just like easy mode for him, even if it's not necessarily the best choice. So because he's not really focused on modern, he thinks that that gives him the highest equity. I can buy that. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, modern, modern is a tough format to keep track of. There's a lot of different decks, uh, a lot of things changing all the time, and a lot of complicated matchups. There's a lot of simple matchups too, but a lot of matchups, knowledge of both the format and your deck's capabilities 
matters a ton. And if you don't have that, just being like, okay, I trust this other person. Sure, I can buy that 100%. Well, realistically, Brad has the network to be able to ask someone (laughs) who is good at modern deck selection. They would get... Yeah, they would tell him what the best deck is to play, and then he could seek out like Canister and ask how to play KCI, right? Like that that is a thing that he could do, but he is just choosing the path of least resistance, which is fine. Yeah. It's it's worked for him up to this point. So anyway, Jess Guy's bad. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. It all comes back to that. So what are you looking at playing for Portland this weekend? So I I basically know a- and, and why. I basically know authoritatively, I know authoritatively what I'm playing, but I would say there are basically three decks I would consider and be happy playing, even if I've kind of cast my lot in with this deck. It shouldn't really surprise anyone. I plan on playing Amulet. I have practiced a bunch with Amulet. I feel like I know the deck very well. I think that one of the interesting things when a deck kind of takes on a... I don't know if a memeish quality is the, is the right way to describe Amulet. Again, it has a very passionate and informed community who has been playing Amulet nonstop for you know a very long length of time. I think of people like Mapson and Edgar um, and, and a bunch of other people who are just Amulet heroes who absolutely love the deck and. Steven Speck. Sure. I, I mean, loads of people. There's a lot of people who have, again, tied their identity to this deck and are firm believers in it. But I think one of the no, things- No, he was, he was the guy that got banned for Palming 7. Oh, that's right. I had deleted him from my, my memory banks at this point. Yeah, he was an amulet aficionado to the fullest possible degree because <laughs> he found a way to always win on turn two, which is impressive. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I think that there's a lot of- resistance to change when it comes to amulet that i've seen and i think people have just been carting out a suboptimal version of this deck for a while i'm I'm just going to say it i think explore is a horrible card and i think once you start getting away from that and look to evolve these builds a little bit with sky shroud ranger possibly which is the card i'm planning on playing right now this deck gets to an even more powerful place. It does everything I want in modern. It wins on turn two far more than it should. Like it, it just shouldn't happen as often as it does. I'm constantly awestruck by how many games I'm winning on turn two. But there's a, a bunch of turn threes mixed in there as well. And you can play a long controlling game. You can play grindy games. You have disruption for big mana decks that you can actually tutor for. If If you set up your deck properly and get to know your deck, it feels like there's nothing that amulet can't do and that's what i've really fallen in love with i feel like i'm very much in control of my own destiny with the caveat that amulet can mulligan a lot and although it does so somewhat effectively you feel like you got lucky when you're able to cash in those mulligans to four but they do happen i I mean i've several times mulliganed to four and found a win on turn three turn four uh it's kind of unbelievable when it happens and you count your blessings when it does but again it feels like it happens way more often than it should basically I've, i've just fallen in love with all the adaptability the archetype has and i think it still has room to grow i think people kind of defaulted to a build uh for a long time and in the aftermath of the summer bloom bannings a lot of people just left the deck okay it's it's not appropriately powered anymore but getting the redundancy of the sixth one drop 
accelerant. So now I have four Sakura Tribe Scouts, two Sky Shroud Rangers. You know, I, I knew Sky Shroud Ranger existed, but Will Pulliam, who just won a SCG with Amulet Titan not too long ago, he just qualified. And an RPTQ. He, that's yeah. what I was going to say. Okay. Yeah, he qualified <laughs> at the RPTQ this weekend uh, with two Sky Shroud Rangers in his build. I am very impressed by his deck list. He, he also did some beautiful things with the sideboard, getting rid of a lot of the low impact sideboard cards that everyone else has relied on. Things like Tireless Tracker and Obstinate Bayloth. Those cards just don't matter enough in the modern format. You need to do something more powerful, uh, something that actually is, is swinging matchups dramatically in your favor, not just these little speed bumps that people have to overcome. And he went really hard on Academy of Ruins and Engineered Explosives. And I love that approach. It was something I was doing in my main deck. So just having spent a bunch of time uh, over the past month or so learning this deck, getting to know it, I think it's underappreciated right now. I think people have scared themselves off this deck. Uh, it's not as hard to play as you might think. I think I'm actually going to write on that next week, kind of uh, an idiot's guide to both Amulet, Titan, and Ironworks, two decks I've learned over the past month and actually found to be fairly easy once you put in the appropriate work. And I'm going to detail exactly how I did that because I don't want people to be scared of this deck anymore. It's something special in the modern format. and I would love to see more people working on it and trying to innovate the archetype. Yeah, I'm looking at his list now and it is really nice. It really is. I like it. Really is. I like the fact that once you have Sky Shroud Ranger, you are consistently getting uh, not necessarily to like three mana on turn two or whatever, but like by the time you get to turn three, you can pretty consistently like trinket mage for amulet, play it, and do some stuff, which I think is super sweet because before, if you didn't have a tribe scout or anything, trinket mage was just too slow. Right, just like. Yeah, you find Amulet, but you're just already dead, you know? And I think Sky Shroud Ranger Trinket Mage is like a very good package. And those replacing just the nonsense that other people were playing is huge. Yeah, there's a lot of like careful considerations I feel like he made. Something like playing 29 lands, whereas most Amulet pilots are playing 27. Well, once you realize that like you are almost always going to have a turn one accelerant now, now that you have six, you have to have extra land drops to take advantage of that. Otherwise, it's completely worthless. So moving to 29 both installs more consistency in the deck, which is one of the biggest problems is just openers without a land to bounce. Like opening up three bounced lands is the worst feeling in the entire world because always the rest of the hand is like, oh, if I just had a land, I would win easily. But of course, that's the the nature of magic when you're mulliganing to things you need. But moving to 29 lands has installed a bunch more consistency. The deck is just humming right now. I think that's the best way to describe it. A lot of the inconsistencies have been ironed out. And one of the things I did while I was kind of working Explore out of my system, because I come to the deck, you know, with no knowledge, no real hard presuppositions. I'm just there to learn and see what's going on. And I started just getting this feeling that over time, okay, Explore's never doing anything from for me. I actually don't think it's impactful in the deck whatsoever. So my response is to then play games without it, but to always, in instances where I draw whatever I replace Explore with, think about how the game would proceed if it actually was still Explore. Like, how does this fundamentally change things if I just had access to this accelerant here? And it never matters. Never. It just never, ever matters whatsoever. Now, granted, it's a cantrip, so it turns into something else, and that card could matter, but the acceleration itself doesn't matter. And if, if that's the case, like, there's other things you can do for cantrips. You can just play the full four Oath of Nisses or Adventurous Impulse. So there's a lot of different paths you can take if you're just trying to get a good cantrip and you can find a better one than explore if the ramp just almost never matters and that's what i was finding so i think moving off that 
kind of, you know, sacred cow of the deck has done a lot to make me really appreciate what the deck's capable of. Yeah, this this deck list is nice. So, I mean, do you think this is something, can you see yourself exploring Amulet one day? Is it something you wish you put in time with? Are, are you just scared of it? Do you think it's something that is intimidating to pick up or where do you fall on this deck? I, I put in... I put in the time, man. That time was 2012. I know. I know. You know, you were in my little Facebook messenger thing with, I remember John Pennick being one of the people. And I don't know, there's, we maybe had like 10 folks that were all like trying to work on the deck. I think Glenn Jones played it for a little bit too. And then it was just like, all right, we're too dumb to figure this out. And we just moved on, you know? And I think that Will did a lot of the work towards figuring it out. And like certainly Edgar too. And, maps in and all these people that put in the iteration to get the list to the point where it is now. I think like everyone kind of had a hand in it, but yeah, I I wouldn't be upset to pick this up again. Yeah. I I think, you know, people see the absurd kills and get scared off, right? Like those kills that are almost impossible to find and can take you five to 10 minutes of scratching your head before you finally see it. And I shared one in my article last week that Edgar had put out but the truth is that even if you miss that kill, you were still going to do something super powerful on that turn. Like you were going to end up with two Titans in play, even if you didn't find the kill on the spot. And certainly that can matter. I'm not trying to discredit that possibility that you gave them the extra turn and you lost the game because of it. But in most instances, it just doesn't. You put two Titans into play on turn two, you're probably going to be okay, even if you miss that one little wrinkle that would have gotten you to lethal on the spot. And I, I, I think people need to be less scared off and just understand there's actually a pretty clear set of like gameplay progressions like step one always make a titan step two see if you can kill them step three if not figure out a way to protect yourself or set up your next titan and if you're just checking off those boxes the deck actually becomes fairly simple in a lot of instances yeah and one of the things that i'm kind of thinking about looking at this list is that sky shard ranger trinket mage kind of makes it easy mode where you have a lot of redundancy both for the azusa type effects and now for amulet and I think that before Trinket Mage was too slow, now it's not. And now you your deck is probably just super consistent. So like you said, you know, it's it's just humming now. I completely believe that. And that that just it just makes it easy mode. Yeah, yeah. It does feel like easy mode sometimes. You're exactly right. And the times you get to win on turn two, it's just like, how did how is this fair? How I mean and knowing that if you needed to, you could play a grindy game and lock your opponent out of the game with like recursive Tormod's crypt or recursive engineered explosives or ghost quarter looping out of the graveyard. Except you're playing three ghost quarters a turn, so see how long Tron holds up to that. Like there's so many crazy things this deck is capable of against so much of the format. Um if there was like loads of really super fast combo something like i mean i don't even know that it exists anymore i I guess if there was way more storm i would be afraid to play this deck storm's not even that fast though they have no draws for sure yeah but i mean if if they're trying to like play electromancer then gifts then kill you on four i mean it's not like they have any way to really interact with you either so Mm, they're probably a braiding post board, right? Are they packing a braid in the sideboard at this point? I think it's like all bolts and fiery impulses and stuff. They have one unsub, maybe some remands, but huh. whatever. Like you, you also have a pact of negation and cavern of souls, and you have your own abrades and spell pierces and stuff to slow them down post board. So right, yeah. You know, I mean, you don't have to I don't convince me. It's a me. great matchup or anything. You don't. You don't have to. Convince yeah, I don't me. think it's a great matchup, but it's it's certainly not just like unwinnable. Yeah, the academy ruins kind of strikes me as nonsense given how many copies of crypt and ee you have plus functional copies with Talaria West and 
growth chamber. Like, I'm not sure what matchup you would actually want the Academy Ruins for, but. Uh, I've had success just setting up explosives against humans. Any kind of like aggro deck, just looping explosives has been nice. Um, I haven't played much dredge since I added Academy Ruins, but again, there you have like Bajuka Bog loops. It just makes things easy again. Again, it feels like easy mode. There's so many setups that you can put together where it's like you had access to this disruption previously. And a lot of times you have the tools to make it come together. And in these circumstances, now you have it always like you can just reliably establish that game plan and coast to victory from that point over and over and over again. It's just, it feels like just another step of consistency to the deck. Yeah. Since I knew that you were disliking explore and I started seeing these magic online lists pop up with sky shroud ranger, I, I made it a point to message you on Facebook before the cast, like, reminder that we have to talk about this card because I didn't think that you had been on board or anything like I didn't know but to me it, it seemed like a very very good inclusion oh my, my foil rangers so. came in the mail on Tuesday this week I think so <laughs> they are ready to go and already in my deck hell yeah all right okay so what are the other considerations KCI and Phoenix I mean I'm going to let you talk about Phoenix at length. Actually, why don't we do that now? Because I have a feeling that's where you lie in in terms of your allegiances for this modern format is with the Phoenix decks. Well, that's that's kind of easy mode for me. And again, the Phoenix stuff is one of the things where it is not completely fleshed out. People haven't found the best version yet. And Baltimore, for me, was very much trying to learn about the archetype and figure out what to do with the Envy, which I may or may not be playing in now. So at the very least, I get some good content out of it and get to help people learn and everything, so that's good. But uh, my experience playing the deck was similar to an experience just playing like any sort of more linear strategy. Like anytime you go from like Jace, Friends, Prodigy, Grixis, Control to like playing Affinity or whatever, you're just like, what the hell was I doing before? Right. You know, like why? Why was I trying to like thought seize them and like loot away lingering souls? Like this is so stupid. Because Flameblade Adept is just insane. The games where you play two hollow ones on turn two, and your your opponents every single time, I kid you not, will roll their eyes. <laughs> it doesn't matter what deck they're playing or what they're trying to do. They're just like, oh, God, obviously, you know? And, you know, they're playing like Gorio's Vengeance or whatever. It's just like, come on, man. But the deck felt very busted. I lost to uh, Colorless Eldrazi in round four. And that was a very interesting match because I won the die roll. My opponent had Gemstone Caverns into turn one Chalice for one. Turn two Thought Not Seer. Turn three Reality Smasher. Turn four Reality Smasher. And it's it's one of those things where like I say that, right? And it just sounds completely busted. But like as the game's going on, I'm not even thinking about like how insane my opponent's draw is because my draw is also insane. Like I'm also doing busted stuff. And then I just think about my opponent's sequence at the end of the game. And I was like, oh, wow, they just had like, you know, the top 10 percentile of draws that their deck could possibly have. Right. Right. And I was I was still in there. I was still battling. And that's pretty insane to me. Great. And then, yeah, game two was uh, turn one relic, turn two thought not seer, turn three smasher, turn four smasher. Yeah, that's that's a lot to overcome. I'm going to be honest with you. My game two thing was actually kind of weird where. There was like a sort of mathy situation. Uh, I also, I, so this is the first time Burning Inquiry just like bit me in the ass completely too. Uh, I cast Burning Inquiry and discarded Hollow One, Hollow One Dismember immediately following the the Thought Knots here. 
Oh. And my hand at that point was Ancient Grudge, Arclight Phoenix, and Manamorphos. And I had I had one mana open, right? So, like, I discarded all three cards that I could possibly cast. Either one of them probably would have won me the game. And then on the next turn, I cast Manamorphos into Faithless Looting. But before that, I had to figure out what colors to name with Manamorphos, right? Because I only had two mana. And I just ended up naming Red Red because if I draw, like, the one of Lightning Bolt I have left in my deck mm-hmm. or... Uh, either the flame blade adepts or another looting or whatever. Like I'm still pretty live. And what ended up happening was I, I drew faithless looting cast that and could discard arc light Phoenix, uh, but did not have another spell to play except that I could discard ancient grudge, but I had the red floating still from the metamorphos uh. and the land, the land that I had was a fetch land. And I already had my one stomping ground in play because I cut the second stomping ground. So basically a lot of odd circumstances coming together to deprive you of any chance from getting back into the game. Right. And, you know, then thinking back on it, I was like, oh, my opponent just like nut drew me twice and I was still in it. And it's possible that a deck building error cost me too. But I also fetched for the stomping ground on turn two and like maybe I was supposed to leave it in my deck. I don't know. I mean, I had a copper line gorge already, but I just had a turn where I just wasn't using that one mana, so I just felt like I could fetch the duel kind of for free sure, taps, sure. you know, and then not have to draw it later and pay life and stuff in a matchup that's like potentially gonna be about racing. So uh yeah, and then in round eight I lost to Tan and Grace on camera playing Tron where I mulled the four in game one, yep. and then game two I had a, a pretty good draw, and he played Karn into Ugin, which wiped my stuff, and then from then on I was doing like one good thing a turn where I think I needed to start doing like two or three good things a turn to overcome. And I, I couldn't like pull that together and eventually just like his big cards beat me up pretty bad, but I beat Tron very, very badly earlier in the tournament and it didn't feel like a bad matchup by any stretch. And that's with so, no like land disruption whatsoever in your 75, right? Yeah. 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 No, no disruption whatsoever. I was just boarding in four grudges for O stones and worm coils and stuff. And that was it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, my, my first Tron opponent played Karn on three, and it was just completely laughable, right? Where they get to use it as a Vindicate, gain three life. Right, right. Not good enough against your deck. So those those are the two matches I lost. And the other six were, you know, they had some close moments. Uh, but for the most part, I felt like the deck was very, very good. And there were games where the inconsistencies definitely shone through a little bit, where Goblin Lore Burning Inquiry would bite me like specifically in the match against the colorless Eldrazi deck. But if that didn't happen and things were proceeding kind of as normal, like I I felt like a pretty good favorite, but I also wasn't playing against any really, really fast decks. You know, I felt like my, my turn four goldfish was generally good enough against a lot of people. Mm. And that might not be the case always. Yeah. Certainly depends on where the format's at. Sounds like maybe some favorable pairings on your part. I, I mean, so broader than just the matches you played where do you see the future of the archetype i mean it it sounds like you were impressed but i also get the sense that you don't think your work is done there's there's more to explore with this card for sure Ooh, brian the work is never done yeah obviously so the games where you have flame blade adept in this version or a hollow one on turn one or turn two are vastly different than the games where you don't have one. And pretty similarly to the version that Jeffrey Carr got second with, the versions where you have Swiss Beer or the draws where you have Swiss Beer are vastly different than the ones that you don't. You know, like just having the one drop 
is easy mode, basically. Okay. And it makes not only the turn four goldfishes trivial, but it makes turn three goldfishes even more of a possibility. So I don't know. I'm kind of looking at versions with like four flame blade adepts and two swift spears and just seeing if there's anything you can do kind of in that space. The part of the deck that I had like the most stumbling issues with was certainly the Bedlam Reveler portion of the deck. Like maybe three is too many actually, and maybe it should only be two copies. And I was siding down to one against potential rest in pieces a lot Mm. and having Swiss beers would help a lot with that. Uh, And yeah, like bringing back Arc Lucky Phoenix was not trivial. Uh, I think triggering it the first time is relatively easy, but then there are times going forward where it's like, you cast Burning Inquiry or Goblin Lore and you're like kind of hoping to be left with some spells and that doesn't always happen, but things like Maximize Velocity helped a little bit, but again, like that's a card that kind of gets sided out in the face of Graveyard Hate, so it's kind of hard to say. Maybe a Flame Jab would help, but I don't know. It's it's not the smoothest thing, you know, when when you're playing like all these random discard spells. Like I do think they kind of put you in the direction that you want to be going, but nothing is ever set in stone or guaranteed. So you're always kind of rolling the dice, but you're a favorite. Okay. That's kind of the opposite of what we talked about. The best players wanting to do in modern, you're, you're willing to step up in there and roll the dice. And I respect that. Do you think arc light Phoenix is the best creature in modern? Uh, it's kind of a weird question. Cause there's like Narcomoeba, right? There is Narcomoeba is kind of a messed up card. And I don't know. Uh, it, it is definitely one of the best engine type things to build around. I do think that it adds a lot to your deck. I mean, the filtering of Faithless Looting is incredible if you have a way to break the downside. And Mardu kind of did that with Lingering Souls and just fueling Bedlam Revelers and keeping the gas going for Young Pyromancer and stuff. But Arclay Phoenix is such a cleaner way to do it. And it actually gives you a game plan to work towards and like something that is actually impactful in the format, unlike the lingering souls tokens. So I think that arc light is good for the same reason that faithless looting is good. And arc light just makes faithless looting that much better. Do you think there's more to be done with the graveyard? Like people aren't maximizing the graveyard enough currently with arc light Phoenix builds. Well, the thing is, is people tend to just side in nonsense against you anyway. Like I had, Someone bring in Damping Sphere against me, which doesn't really matter because I'm trying to build this this board position early, right? Mm. And then they play Sphere, and it's like, well, I already used all my cards, and now I'm going to play, like, one Goblin Lore every other turn from now, so it doesn't really do a whole lot. And then the people bringing in the Rest in Peace as I cut my Revelers and stuff, I mean, it, it just doesn't really accomplish a whole lot to walk into their Graveyard Hate even harder than you have to. Right. So I don't I don't think that that's necessarily a good idea. Like pe- people like Ari's article badmouth the Phoenix decks because it's like, oh, you're playing this faithless looting deck that's like not even going hard on the graveyard. What's the point? And it's like, well, because then you're not really using your graveyard. That's that's the upside. It's huge. Right. And you're better set up for post board games, which you're going to play far more of throughout the day. Right. And there's there's still this overarching narrative in modern where you want to play rest in pieces. And that's why people are playing banned spirits instead of humans. And there's this humans deck that just five out a league that is banned with spell queller and rest in peace in the sideboard. And admittedly looks hella good. It does look like just a great deck, but 
people think that rest in peace is like the end all be all against a lot of these decks. And I want to be on the side of this. This is kind of similar to you refusing to play the best deck. Like you want to play the second best deck or the best deck that also beats the first best deck. Like I want to be the graveyard deck because the graveyard stuff is almost certainly the most powerful thing you can be doing in modern Mm -hmm. and the hardest to interact with until the sideboard games. And then I just want my graveyard to not really be a very important part of what I'm doing or what I'm trying to accomplish. I'm I'm looking at this banned humans deck you're talking about right now. It's in the most recent deck dump, the one that came out on uh, December 4th, if you want to take a look at it. And I I think this player is from the discord. I'm pretty sure Samuel Grabner. Yeah, Uh, Sam. Yeah, he's in our Discord, and uh, so you can definitely pick his brain there about this wild take on humans, but finally getting access to a true mana base, basically using something very close to the Bant Spirits mana base, getting access to Collected Company and using the Bugler, a lot of cool stuff going on here, basically giving up Black and Kitesail Freebooter and Red and uh, Mantis Rider for some more effective disruption, I think, right now. Stuff like Spell Queller doing a much better job controlling combo than Kite's Hell Freebooter can hope to do right now. Yeah, and you have Collected Company and Bugler. You're never going to run out of gas. Right, and you can play against these Jeskai decks and the Blue-White decks very effectively with that much card advantage built into your all-creature deck. Pretty astounding stuff there. Yeah, so I, I like that deck a lot. This is another deck like a late addition to my potentials for this weekend, but Amulet is a good choice. I do like it. How how do you think Amulet does against Banned Spirits? Because I do think that that will be a very popular deck. I think it's close. I think it's very close. I I would probably say that about most Amulet matchups, honestly, it it doesn't feel like there's anywhere you're just, I mean, short of like Ponza, obviously. It doesn't feel like there's anywhere you're just completely blown out of the water. It depends on your approach to it. I think if you're doing like the heavy engineered explosives, a bunch of abrades in your sideboard package to do a good job keeping selfless spirit off the battlefield um, and, you know, taking out any lords before they get problematic and just really stemming the, uh, the beats early on until you can set up some kind of effective plan. I, I think you're fine. Sometimes Bant just prevents you from doing that, though. They, their pieces come together really well, and they have a disdainful stroke in the key spot, uh, and then you end up not getting there. But for the most part, I, I'd say it's probably close to 50-50. I don't think it really swings in anyone's favor. How do you feel about just trying to play more caverns, maybe? You could. You could. I mean, I, I could buy a second copy in the sideboard. It, it just feels like you get it when you need it. The thing about when you want cavern it's mostly against the slowest decks, right? Like blue-white is the main spot where you really want cavern. And against something like Bant Spirits, uh, you're more concerned about forcing through your board control stuff than your Titans. Like the Titan stuff is going to come together eventually if you prevent yourself from dying, if if you are able to deal with their threats. I I don't know. I don't know that you need the second Cavern of Souls because it's so trivially easy to go find one with your Teleria West against Blue-White because you have literally all the time in the world. And then post-board, I have Ramanap Excavator and I'm always just going to have Cavern of Souls back if they happen to have the Field of Ruin for it. Plus, you don't expose it. You you keep it protected in the early game and don't put it on the battlefield until you're ready to use it. It hasn't come up for me wanting a second copy. I've been able to get the copy when I need it. But... I, I could see a metagame where you do want a second copy for sure. Again, something like Spirits, I'm not even worried about the Titans so much as just being able to resolve an Azusa or something through their through spell, spell queller, queller turn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it matters for sure. I don't know. I, I don't think the games often come down to that kind of 
point. They can. That's the thing about Amulet is it can play so many different types of games, but it feels more like you're just trying to run them out of resources because they're a card advantageless deck, right? With the exception of Collected Company, that, that's really the only point of card advantage they have. So if you're just kind of one for one in them in the early turns, you're pretty comfortable with being in that position. You, you don't necessarily need to have the big combo turn on turn three, turn four, but I don't know. I think... Th- I think the games play out a lot like that post-board, but certainly game one, you don't have a lot of ways to interact with them. And I think a lot of whether you win or lose is actually just trying to get around Spellqueller to some degree and make it so you get to six mana. Because once you get to six mana, you're kind of unstoppable. You know, like maybe they have like a path to exile or whatever, but like they still have to be clocking you. And if you get to six mana very quickly, like through Azusa Cavern, then I think they're kind of screwed. And... Uh, another thing that you noted is like, oh, Pons is a bad matchup, but with, with six Sakura Tribe Scouts, I don't even think that that's true, actually. Well, keep in mind that your Sky Shroud Rangers are only at sorcery speed. Oh, yeah. God, that, that is bad. That yeah. is a downside. So it's it's not just a, a six copy. And I definitely All had a, right. a combat I went to where I was like, oh, I have the kill. And I realized my mana dork was a ranger and not a scout, so I couldn't put in the bounce land in my hand to activate my sun home. Uh, in the key yep. spot it's it's still good though we promise yeah it is Sky it Shard is still good, still good but you have to be cognizant of its weaknesses but yeah you're right that if you have a secure tribe scout set up you can certainly do a lot to play around ponza's land destruction even still the ranger probably helps just like having another accelerator but yeah it definitely does not serve the purpose that i thought it did no no that would be too good maybe it's already too good but that would be really too good yeah oh well uh so yeah amulet this this human stack, some sort of Arc Light Phoenix stack. I do think the blue red ones are reasonable. I just think that I don't know. Maybe for the NV, blue red is actually a better choice than mono red. Like if I was playing Portland, I would almost certainly just be playing a mono red Phoenix list if I was playing Phoenix. But if everyone's going to be playing fair stuff and they're going to be playing like spirits, like I I kind of just want the blue cards and. The consistency of all the cantrips, thing in the ice, and then these magic online lists have Pyromancer Ascension too, which has just got to be tremendous in those fair matchups. Yeah, that's a wild inclusion. Certainly adds a whole nother dimension to the deck. But while while we're talking about adding Pyromancer Ascension to this list, can we talk about Thought Scour for a second? And can you put forth some reason? Why Thought Scour is not being like I'm looking at the the list from the Magic deck from the Modern Deck Dump on Magic Online. There's no Thought Scours in the deck. There's four ops, four sleight of hands, zero Thought Scours. I, th- I think Ross's deck had two. Why aren't there four Thought Scours in these decks? So you said, can we talk about Thought Scour? And I was like, what do you mean? We obviously play four copies, right? Like, <laughs> okay. So so what I do when I build my decks is I write down all the cards that I could potentially play. And then I fill in the numbers that I know I definitely want, where in this deck, for example, I would have four Arclight Phoenix, four Thing in the Ice, four Faithless Looting, four Lightning Bolt, four Metamorphose, and four Thought Scour. Those would just start in my deck, and then everything else is competing for deck space. I have such a hard time understanding not playing what seems like the best cantrip for this deck. I've heard arguments that like because you're an 18 land deck, you need to be able to have the choice what's max which maximizes your ability to hit your next land drop play a 19th land if that's your concern like seriously that's why you're downgrading every single cantrip in your in your deck that's crazy talk that doesn't make any sense especially when you get to pyromancer ascension it's like oh my god thoughts guy and pyromancer ascension is about as busted as it gets i i don't know i don't know what's going on here this is this is crazy to me 
Scour is busted with Arclay Phoenix, Bedlam Reveler, Pyromancer Ascension, just straight up. And I don't know what you would have to pay me to register for a tournament <laughs> without Thought Scour in this sort of deck. Like it, it would have to be like a lot of money, honestly. Yeah, this this is a strange one to me, one that I'm having a really hard time wrapping my head around. I mean, I I don't think it's an oversight. I think it is a conscious decision not to play Thought Scour, which makes it all the more baffling. I don't know. I, I hope if we do nothing to advance these archetypes besides getting people to start playing four Thought Scours, that, that's enough for me. That that change has to be made. It's Dark Ritual. Yeah. What like why? Why would you not? I don't understand. It, it's a lot of different cards. It's Dark Ritual. It's like Living Wish. I, I, I don't know. It's doing so many things for this deck. Please, please, please play it. I, I just think it's correct. You know how bad Sleight of Hand and Opt are? Yeah, I've, like opt, I've played can, them a lot. Opt, you can make a case for, oh, it works with Terminus, right? So I'm supposed to play it in my blue eye control deck. And it's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense, right? But it's not like every single blue deck just has four copies of Sleight of Hand because it's so good. I mean, you can you can definitely just afford to give up Sleight of Hand and play Thought Scour instead, even if you don't want to add an additional land. Yep. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I, I can't even play Devil's Advocate with this one. I don't know how to, so... Yeah, uh, Thought Scour's tight. Y'all, y'all should play with it. It's very good. So I, I think there's one more deck that I want to touch on. All of these options, totally agree. Very fine options. Even if I've cast my lot with one, I would not fault anyone for choosing to play uh, something like this very innovative humans take or any of these arc-like decks if you think you have an edge on the field and you figured something out. The last deck I think we have to talk about is KCI. And... I think you share my opinion that this is just a deck which is underappreciated, underutilized, underplayed. There should be more KCI players. It posted a top eight uh, again at this this past Open. I would expect heavy representation in Portland. I actually expected to see more representation in Portland than I do at the Invitational. I don't know why that's my take. It just feels like uh, people are more open on the GP circuit to just... Uh, giving up some of the fairer options and just letting modern be modern. This deck is insanely broken uh, and it's easier to learn than you might think. Canister just put out another article today basically saying, look, know these two loops and let let it be that simple for yourself. And I understand why that take makes a lot of sense is because I spent the past you know week or so basically learning all the loops considering playing the deck before ultimately deciding to pass on it. But a lot of these other loops, they're so close to deterministic, even if you don't see the loop, that you're just going to get to the simpler loop anyway, eventually. Like you, something would have to go, it's basically like a 99% chance you go get your whatever's missing from it, Mox Opal or, you know, Chromatic Star instead of Chromatic Sphere. And in the interim, you're able to draw 25 cards and you're just getting more and more value as time goes on. So the fact that you're missing a more complicated loop that relies on like, you know, a star activation combined with simultaneously sacrificing a mirror retriever and scrap trawler. Do those loops matter? Yeah, they matter, but it's such a small edge. Like just let yourself be comfortable, figure out the most basic loops, the key loops and take it from there. And and that's not 
That tricky stuff is not where Ironworks is getting its edge. It's getting its edge because it's incredibly consistent, incredibly resilient, and has one of the best sideboard transformations I've ever seen for a deck like this. Because Psymaster Thopterus is just insane. Canister's playing a copy in the main deck now. I've I've heard rumors that there are as many as two in his main deck at some point. And I totally see why it both enables the combo, gets you more setup time, and allows you to do a complete 180 in postboard games and play this bizarro, like aggro control deck i don't even know how to define it but you just set up behind Psy and you have your engineered explosives going and you become unassailable at some point and then you just win the game with your deterministic combo so uh if you haven't put in the time i think you need to i think you need to understand ironworks better than you currently do so austin collins's list from uh, eighth place in the open has one spine one Psy main deck so pretty normal looking Ely's list from 31st place is a little weirder with uh, no spine, a fabricate, a bridge, one random Nile Spellbomb, which honestly seems fine if you can get the mana to that for mana for Nile Spellbomb to work. I think that seems pretty cool, like a good way to hedge against a lot of the graveyard decks in the format. Yeah. And then Shaheen was one of the people that I saw playing Ironworks, which he's been playing for a while now. And there was this really funny game against Pakula where he had a very quick antiquities war and was going to win with it. And then the turn it went off, like he had Psy and a bunch of Thopters too. The turn it went off, Pakula vialed in image, copied his engineered explosives, which was now a 5-5 and blew it to kill all the Thopters and the explosives so that he didn't die. That is insane. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, situations like that could be one of the reasons why KCI was not better represented, where it's just like you get blown out in these like very ridiculous fashions. <laughs> well, I would not have expected that. Yeah, I, I like these. I like the cleaner builds like, you know, Canister's list has and Austin Collins is, I, I think, card for card the same as Canister's GP Atlanta list. Uh, maybe plus one fire spout. I don't think that was in the GP Atlanta list and a shift in the galvanic blast and lightning bolt slots. But regardless, it's very similar, very clean, nothing flashy, uh, just very clean combo setups. And this deck does its thing over and over and over and does it on turn three in some instances, in a lot of instances. I, I mean, basically, if you like, if you have the Opaler Mind Stone and Ironworks on turn three, a lot of setups get there. More setups than you think. Like the more practice you have with it, the more you realize there's a bunch of ways to just get there on turn three. But more likely, you're just almost always going to have it on turn four. And if you don't, you probably have engineered explosives to buy yourself more time. This deck is special. This is the deck I think is closest to eventually garnering a banning, both for operations concerns, because it does have like those 15 minute turns and just pure power level. And it's easier than you think it is. And you would be very justified in playing this deck. My, the thing that ultimately pushed me away from it was just the mental tax. I didn't want to pay it throughout the day. And, you know, this is kind of like that part excuse making, part like finding what works for you that we talked about earlier in the episode. I I just don't think I'm going to be playing optimally by the end of the day if I put myself through these mental gymnastics all day. Amulet comes a lot easier to me. I, I think it is. It, it's got like 
the heights of its difficulty are higher than Ironworks difficulty. But on average, a lot of games are much simpler than the average Ironworks game. And certainly a lot less operations, which if anyone has watched me play Magic Live, they know <laughs> the uh, the op- keeping of my operations clean is not my specialty. So this deck is not for me, but I do think it's an amazing choice. And at some point I will play it in a tournament. Uh, I think I just want to do it at one with a little bit less stakes. Yeah, that's legit. Maybe at some point we need to sit down and actually work on your operations. I That's been something on my to-do list for a long time. And I will say that working with this deck helped a lot because I, I installed a lot of like shortcuts and systems to help me manage them much more effectively. So I, I think it's a good exercise for me in terms of helping those things along, but they're not there yet. And I recognize that and I'd rather play towards my strengths. And I, I think this deck isn't giving me the best chance of doing that, but such a good choice. And it's hard when we're here, you're going to hear this on Friday, you know, or Thursday night and the invitations on Friday and the GP is on Saturday. So it, it's hard to pick up this deck on the spot and show up at the GP with it. But I hope that this discussion is putting a note in your mind to be like, okay, after this set of tournaments is over, that's when I'm going to finally learn Ironworks and then I will have it in my pocket for the next tournament because I do feel like I have it in my pocket now. It's another tool in my belt. I don't feel intimidated by it. And honestly, it revealed itself to be much simpler than I thought it was, which was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, and if PT Cleveland ends up being modern, which that's kind of like the rumor that's going around, then I think I should actually do some work and like try and at least play with both of those decks like KCI and Amulet because that's sort of my blind spot. Yeah, and there's a certain like set of, I I guess I would call them setups that both decks have that you can practice with really easily. Like you just say, okay, I have these things. What can I do? And that's where the loops actually started to really click for me was when I just gave myself those things and was like, okay, what can I do? And I deciphered the loop on my own as opposed to, I mean, I had read it before, but I didn't have it in front of me. I wasn't looking at the loop and how it was done. I was just configuring the cards and thinking about it kind of my own way. And at that point, it was like, oh, okay, now I get this. Now it's finally rooted in my brain. It's not just a fact I'm regurgitating. It's something I actually understand. And it's pretty easy to rehearse those spots with the deck, honestly. Yeah. And then once once you have that knowledge, even if you're not playing KCI or even in the, the cases of Amulet, it's like you know what your opponent is capable of too. Correct. Which I think matters a lot. It's like, oh, well, like there's literally nothing they could have to set them up for a kill next turn unless they had something like three Mox Opals or whatever. So I can afford to tap out this turn. I don't have to be scared and like hold open Spellqueller because it just doesn't matter, right? Yeah, and that format knowledge is so important. Like that's where modern edges are really built is just knowing what your opponent's deck is capable of. Yep, Absolutely. So KCI, amulets, uh, humans with a real sideboard. I think some version of Arclight Phoenix is, uh, it's pretty easy to say that if you're playing Arclight Phoenix and Faithless Looting, that is a reasonable choice given the results from last weekend's Open. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's a little variable between uh, playing the SCG Envy, playing GB Portland, playing upcoming RPTQs, especially like where the RPTQs are located or whether or not it's on Magic Online or not. I mean, the metagames I think are just going to be wildly different and you need to be concerned about that and prepare for that. Uh, incredible amount of Phoenix on Magic Online right now from what I've seen. Just, I feel like I play against it constantly. So Magic Online is a place where people are very adaptable with deck choices, especially because modern is generally cheap right now. 
there's a ton of very good decks that are available for around 100 tickets, which you certainly couldn't have said at many points throughout Modern's history. But especially the Arc-like decks, they're very affordable. So you're seeing them a lot in the queues as it stands now. And I would expect if you were playing the Magic Online RPTQ, uh, there would be a lot of Phoenix there as well. Yeah, and Phoenix keeps holding at like high 20s on Magic Online, Mm -hmm. which is another sign that the card is being very widely played. Oh yeah, for sure. Because normally those standard cards, even if it is just like kind of the Chase Mythic in the set, will eventually drop, right? It's like Teferi was very expensive, uh, but that was about it. And Arclight is kind of in the same camp. Yeah, my uh, my Arclight purchases this format have bought me about three other modern decks thus far from, from selling my <laughs> extras. So I cannot complain. Oh, you should have told me, man. Uh, I think you told me. No, I, I <laughs> That's did. the problem with that advice. I did. I, well, I, I told you and then you bought them, but you didn't make sure to tell me to buy them. So I knew. Oh, I see. So it's my I, fault. Yeah, right. it is your fault, really. Yeah. Next time I'll just log into your account and get them for you. Dude, I appreciate it. That's really nice of you. I, I try. <laughs> if you could if you could also like, you know, log into my bank account and then transfer more tickets onto my account and Sure, why not? Buy- I'll just take over your Moto account. That's fine. I'll manage it for you. Yeah, I'll be you, like your uh my your broker. advisor, your financial yeah, your portfolio advisor. Okay, cool. That that sounds like a hell of a deal. That's probably against the TOS in some form. I don't know. <laughs> Imagine if that was like a, a service you could hire, like someone to hire your magic, to to manage your magic online portfolio. I, w- I mean, I would hire that person in a second. I'd just let my cards rot. Yeah, but if, if someone has the skills to actually do that, they should just, They should just do it. They should be doing it themselves or even just like playing penny stocks or whatever, you know. Right, but I would argue both you and I have the skills to do that. Like we routinely do so. And you're you're just saying right now you just didn't act on it. You could have done it and did not. Yeah, well, I'm also very stupid. So I, I think that that precludes me from actually having the skills to do it. <laughs> Fair enough. I win the argument. Yes. Sure, I'll give, I'll give you this one. All right, so we have a fun question, right? Yeah, real fun question. I, I know you're super excited to field this question. Okay, so Wessel Groot, I hope I pronounced that right, Wessel, is asking if you can respond to the recent article that's been floating around Twitter. That's a response to Jerry T's protest about the state of professional play and how Wizards as a company fits into the paradigm. And the article Wessel is talking about is uh, a blog post from someone named A.D. Jameson, and it's entitled An Open Letter to Cedric Phillips, Jerry Thompson, and the Pro Magic Community. And this has kind of made the rounds on Twitter at this point. If you haven't seen it, I'm not going to retweet it, but look around. You'll find it. Uh, it, it does exist. It's out there. And it's, it's an open letter to you, Jerry. So people are dying to hear if you have a response to this. No. No, I'm just kidding. No response. Nothing. No. Yeah. Uh, I, I read this. It is very, very long. It makes a lot of different points. And would require a lot for me to have a full response to this. So I will try and provide the cliff notes. Uh, The short version is I vehemently disagree, I suppose. I think that there are a lot of points made that are already public knowledge. Uh, I mean, this, this person who is admittedly like not a wizard's insider was just able to do research and find all of these things. And it's like anyone who's been playing magic over the last decade or so has been around for a lot of this stuff. And there are a lot of things that 
are kind of incorrect in the article, which I don't know, it doesn't necessarily take away from the points that they're making, but it does make it seem like they're kind of like cherry picking knowledge and kind of shifting things in a way that is favorable for them and their argument, which I don't really like because that's kind of like the first indicator that, you know, if you if you basically need to like lie to make your argument seem good, then your argument is probably not valid. Let me, can I back you up for one second? Sure. Can you surmise what, what his argument is? Like, what exactly is he putting forth in, uh, in this open letter? It is basically that Wizards, uh, for up until 2008, had been catering to pros. And after they shifted away from that, stopped catering to bros, started catering to a casual audience, they started making more money. And that is not entirely accurate. In, in the fact that like up until 2008, they were not catering to pros whatsoever. A lot of the complaints and stuff we have about prize payouts and the way that we're treated and stuff was also happening back then, you know? And he, he makes a point that like wizards was making like these combo and control heavy environments because that's what pros wanted. And that is just entirely not true. That was just likely wrong. Yeah. That was just how they thought like the, the game design direction of magic should be. Right. Like they ended up in this format where combo and control were viable and people were still playing magic and people continued to design cards like that. I mean, it was it was as simple as that. And then once they figured out that like having this creature combat centric sort of style would be more beneficial for casual players, they they kind of leaned into that. But I think that also just made magic healthier as a whole. And there are no pro players out there who are like, you know, bring back Talarian Academy or whatever. Like no one, no one is that stupid. Right. And I think just making that argument just kind of undermines the entire article. I I think that there were a few, there were a few times during this article where it just feels really patronizing, right? Like it's, it's delivering a message to you. One that this person assumes they know better than you already do. I mean, there are a few people on the planet more invested in magic than you and Cedric Phillips. And to think someone who admittedly like doesn't have all the information is able to tell you exactly what Wizards was thinking. I mean, like you worked at Wizards. <laughs> you were there. You you designed cards with Wizards. I literally worked at Wizards for six months. Cedric and I met at a tournament in 2002. We have been playing effectively nonstop since then. And we have seen all of these changes take place and we, we were around, we know the reasons why. Yeah, man, I don't know. Uh, it is, it is like kind of like condescending and, and patronizing at, at the same time. It's, it's really just like not a great look to just assume that we don't know these things. Cause we already do, but like, the, the reason that it's it's in this tone and explaining the things that we already know to us in, in this sort of way is because this person thinks that it's like binary, right? It's like, well, they should be catering to the casual audience because that makes them more money. It's like, yeah, that's correct. No one is going to disagree with you on that at all because the the amount of players that play tournament magic is like 2% or whatever, right? It's like, two of the 20 million people that play magic. Everyone knows that that is, that is like widely documented public information. And it is not binary in that you can 
design cards for casual players, market to casual players, but also pay attention to professionals and recognize that they have something to bring to the table too, which is a thing that is just completely ignored. And there was, there's a really good tournament or a really good uh, video that the prof did a while back about why the pro tour matters and how pros influence card sales by creating content and this whole like content mechanism that exists on the internet. You know, it happens daily. Like there are so many websites that make magic content and uh, like YouTube and stuff like that. And a lot of the driving factor behind that is the pro tour and whether or not it's like, us writing like hard hitting articles on various things or Saffron Olive talking about like, you know, budget decks or whatever, like all of it stems from the fact that there is a professional scene. Right. I, I don't want to give too much of my take on this because it was not addressed to me. It is an open letter to you. And I think I'd rather have your opinion. Uh, I will say that despite the fact that it wasn't addressed to me, I was very frustrated and I wouldn't go as far as angry. Like I I don't get really get angry about these things, but it it felt like this was someone saying, hold on kid, let me tell you how things work in the real world. (laughs) Like assuming they have a level of expertise uh, and a level of knowledge to impart upon you, despite the fact that, like I said, you you've lived this, you know, this Um, you understand the dichotomy. And, and that's one of the things I think that, you know, maybe it's unfair because I know you and we've talked about this a lot under other circumstances. And, you know, I get more context for your protest than this person does. This person sees your Reddit post, basically. They don't get to talk to you on a daily basis. So maybe it's a little unfair to hold them to a standard of, you know, knowing what you know and knowing how carefully and how acutely aware you are of, you know, the dichotomy of magic and how there is this huge casual audience. I I mean, I I just know you think about these things. And I think this person, it it just comes from a place of assuredness that surely you hadn't considered this, Jerry. Let me tell you how it actually is. That made me really frustrated. But you've handled it well maybe better than I am. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm willing to just let it pass. I, I just thought there was a lot of factual inaccuracies and uh, a lot of kind of grandstanding. And also these these things just aren't mutually exclusive. They're just not. 100%. So 100%. All, this, all the stuff- If you look at everything else on the planet, like every other game, I mean, there's like a, a competitive Street Fighter circuit and a bunch of casual players and they do a lot with marketing the competitive people. And there's- more people who play League of Legends than any game on the planet. And there's only like a hundred that play it competitively, but they market those competitive. Like you can just find analogs all over the place. Why this is a successful strategy. And like all this stuff doesn't account for the fact that when magic was doing the nascent pro circuit, the culture was different. There weren't the same platforms. There wasn't the same willingness to accept this as a competitive endeavor that there is now. It just overlooks so much. And I, I think it's kind of, uh, unforgivable for that. Yeah. I, I, I started writing in 2008, you know, I started yeah. making content in 2008, basically. Like I did a few things here and there before that, but creating content actually became my career in 2008. And I think that that was around the point when like, you know, SCG premium was really taking off and everything like that. And yeah, the, the internet started becoming a very, very important aspect of magic. Uh, Twitter founded shortly thereafter. And 
now it's a, a big deal and the personalities are a big deal and it doesn't like have to come at the expense of promoting two casual players or making cards for casual players or whatever. Like they both deserve to mm-hmm. exist. And at no point was I just like, uh, screw the other 18 million. What about me? You know? And that, that seems to be like the big missing piece to this whole thing where I don't know, this person obviously did a bunch of research to name off all of these, you know, quote unquote facts. Right. But uh, they could have researched me a little bit and the actual pro community and things like that and actually had a good take on that, too. But they chose not to. I agree. So, yeah, fun stuff. Uh, I originally saw that (laughs) and I I read it and uh, messaged Cedric about it and we kind of had our little back and forth about it. But in order for me to respond in full, it would have taken like way more time than I was willing to put into it because it was like so very obviously off base that I just didn't even see a point to it. And then I woke up the next day and like 150 people had retweeted it and people now want to hear my response. So rather than just address this one person that I didn't feel like I owed anything to, I mean, I owe people or I owe the people who follow me and care about me and like actually want to know my thoughts about it. So there you go. Right. Right. And I think that's important. People always want to know where you stand on these issues and for, for better or worse, this did gain traction. I, I think it's good uh, t- that you have a platform that you get to respond to it. And I, I'm happy you got your your opinion out there, your voice out there. And I'm sure our listeners appreciate it as well. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I I get why people were attracted to it, where it's like this well-written article that lays out things in a very concise manner. It's just like a lot of the facts are wrong and he's not necessarily responding to anything that me or Cedric said. Uh, like we're, we're just kind of like talking past each other for the most part and the things are right. exclusive. So that's it. That's the, that's the short version. Well, I appreciate you checking in on that. Uh, best of luck this weekend. I hope things go fantastic for you. Be it filling in for Todd, Todd, I hope you feel better. Or if you're out there casting hollow ones and arc like Phoenixes, I hope your burning inquiries are kind and your goblin lores are immaculate. I don't even need them to be immaculate, you know, just like not take all my playable cards. <laughs> all right. I, I hope you get to keep your hollow ones. Is that enough goodwill? Are oh, you yeah. To accept yeah, that? that's good. Because there'll be like a faithless looting in the graveyard. Probably we can just re-up next turn. Beautiful. Also, I could just try and see if anyone has an amulet deck because I didn't bring any of those cards with me. I, I would love if you joined me in Amuletville, have someone else to spitball amulet ideas with. We can take this archetype to the next level, Jerry. It could be you and me redefining the amulet game. Yeah, we really could. I don't know. Uh, maybe uh, is, is next week good or the week after maybe? Like I'm I'm down to like sit in and uh, watch a moto session or just like talk about things. We we could potentially stream it. We don't have to, but we could also like YouTube it or something. I don't know. I'm, da- I'm down to make something like this happen. If people show enough interest, I will sign up for that. So set the game podcast twitter account ablaze let us know if that's something you want to see and uh if there's enough support then yes i will sign up for some some good old-fashioned amulating in some form of recorded medium be it twitter or youtube do you do you call it amulet like edgar no i'm too old for that (laughs) i am 36 years old if i call anything lit like seriously a a bunch of people will gather around me point and laugh immediately (laughs) I, i cannot in good faith call anything lit 
hello there, fellow school children or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Hello, fellow kids. Yeah, the Steve Buscemi meme. Yeah, that would yeah. be exactly me if I called it amulet. You're you're still you're still cool, Brian. You're still hip. Don't worry. I try. I try. I'm young at heart. That's what matters. Well, I'm in a, a hotel right now and it's way past midnight and I think a lot of people are are sleeping, so you can sign us out. People really liked when you did the whispered that's game. You sure you don't want to drop that? Ooh, on? I could I could do that. That's game. <laughs>